right, good morning. Welcome to Haven Ridge this morning. It's good to see everyone. It's good to see so many folks back. Uh, last, last week we were a lot of people out, sick, traveling. And it's good to see everyone this morning. All right, well, let me give a few announcements as we get started. Uh, one, I want to welcome the uh, Wilson's baby into the world. It was born last weekend, uh, so I hope you maybe saw that on Discord. Um, but if you haven't already, take an opportunity to bless them, sign up for the meal train uh, for them on Discord. Uh, but we're excited. Baby and Mama are doing well, both healthy, uh, uh, growing. So, uh, baby lost a little bit of weight initially, but I think it's doing well, having to you know, go through that process of making sure feedings are regular, trying to get weight back up, um, but, but otherwise doing well. Um, so we want to certainly pray for them, but also take an opportunity to bless them, give them meals. So that sign-ups on Discord. You can do that there. Uh, also, as I mentioned last week, um, we have Christmas cards from Doug and Lauren, our missionaries in Asia. Uh, they're over here on the teal top table. So if you want to uh, kind of see what's going on with them, how you can pray more specifically for them, especially during this season, uh, you guys can pick up those cards uh, after the service there. Uh, also, as, as with last week, um, there are Christmas lights and uh, some kind of partitions that are out in the field area. Just ask the younger kids uh, as they're playing after the service. Don't stay away from that area. Parents, uh, adults, try and help keep kids just out of that, that area as they're selling Christmas seed, uh, trees for the season. <clears throat> All right, uh, Young Girls Bible Study is this evening f- doing the final short chapter, and then you'll also have the progressive dinner uh, where you'll go from house to house and eat probably more food than you can handle. I know y'all are really excited about this. Yes, PJs. Wear your favorite PJs and also bring a $5 wrapped gift. I believe there's going to be a gift swap going on there. So I know my kids have been talking about that. They're excited. So that is this evening, uh, 4.30 to 7.30. Drop off here at the church. And then, parents, you'll pick your kids up at the Birchfields house. Am I, that's correct? Okay, if you need information or anything uh, about that, see uh, Sarah Birchfield uh, if you need directions to their house or anything like that. So, But I think I get all the details there for that. So that's all correct. Good. All right. Awesome. Got that one. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> also team leader meeting because of the progressive dinner and folks that are committed to that. Uh, we're moving the team leader meeting to the 22nd. That's Wednesday, the 22nd, December 22nd um, at 630. I think I've talked with a lot of the team members, a couple more I need to just check in with. So, but just know we're shifting that um, busy holiday season. So uh, just, uh, just kind of bear with us as we try and juggle all those things. Uh, all right, uh, the night of worship, our Christmas night of worship, December the 12th here at the church building, 6.30 to 7.30. Uh, it's going to be a family-style worship, so no child care provided. Certainly welcome. Bring the little ones, absolutely. We want this to be just a warm, inviting, comfortable family event where we just worship the Lord. There will be scripture reading. Uh, there will be prayer. There will be lots of singing. Um, just very rich gospel, God-exalting Christmas songs that we can sing and just worship the Lord together. So really excited about this. Have our regular band has been practicing very, very hard for uh, for that, along with some special guests that we're very excited to introduce to you, uh, who'll be playing and singing. Uh, so definitely mark your calendar for that. That's a, a night of worship you do not want to miss. Yes. Six to Sorry, six to seven thirty. Six to seven thirty. Okay. 
All right. Uh, also, December the 16th, that's a Wednesday, I believe. That's Ladies Bunko. Is that 16th? We're 15th. Sorry, 15th. That's what I thought. All right, 15th at 630 here at the church. There's also a cookie swap. So bring cookies to swap and eat. That will be lots of fun for you ladies. There's a sign-up on Discord for that as well. All right. And then uh, December the 19th, youth brainstorming meeting, our final kind of brainstorming meeting, just putting nuts and bolts together, all the logistics, and hoping to launch uh, our, our a youth program essentially coming in January. So it's been much anticipated. We're excited about that. Um, you know, but uh, youth brainstorming meeting, if you've been involved in that or if you're still interested in participating in that, uh, come on the 19th and we'll, we'll talk more about what that's going to look like. Uh, time is to be determined, probably going to be around that 6, 630 time frame, which is when we've met in the past. All right. Alan, I missing anything? Okay. All right. Well, our call to worship this morning comes from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28 Ezekiel was called to be a prophet. He was exiled into Babylon. Um, Jeremiah, contemporary prophet as well. The, the nation of Israel had been disobedient, and as a consequence, God had caused the Babylonians to decimate uh, Jerusalem and, and cart them off through three invasions. And then several years into, the, uh, into their captivity, Ezekiel is called to be a prophet. Okay. And so there's a dark time in Israel's history. And Ezekiel's given several visions in regard to what he is to, supposed to do as a prophet and the message that he's supposed to give to Israel in regards to their responsibility, but also God's promises in bringing about their redemption uh, and their restoration. Verse 28 says, As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance, speaking of the radiance of the Lord, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice speaking. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you, may we not take your worship lightly. May we not take your, our, your presence here with us lightly. We come to worship the living God. The one to whom all glory is due. And Father, just as for Ezekiel, your presence, the physical manifestation of your presence there was like the rainbow, a symbol of comfort and encouragement of your promise-keeping ability and your faithfulness to carry out your plans. And those are good plans. Father, so we gather this morning. We ask that your presence would be with, here with us if Father, it would be a comfort to us, no matter what we're going through. If Father, we would look to you as our provider, as our protector, as Father, the one who cares for us, and will faithfully carry out all of your promises, just as you did in Noah's day, just as you did in Ezekiel's day, just as you did in Paul's day. Father, you're doing that same thing now continuing to faithfully and with much, much patience carry out your promises. So, Father, we worship you this morning. Would you please be pleased to be here with us? Father, may we listen to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, please. Thank you. 
starry host You trace the mountain peaks You paint the evening skies with wonder The earth, it is your throne From desert to the sea All nature testifies your splendor Praise the Lord, praise the Lord Sing His greatness, all creation Praise the Lord, raise your voice You heights in all you depths From furthest east to west Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord You reached into the dust In love your spirit breathed You formed us in your very likeness To know your wondrous works To tell your mighty deeds To join the everlasting chorus Praise the Lord, praise the Lord Sing His greatness, all creation Praise the Lord, raise your voice New heights and all you depths From furthest east to west Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord Let symphonies resound Let drums and choirs ring out All heaven hear the sound of worship Let every nation bring its honor to the King A roar of harmonies eternal Praise the Lord, praise the Lord Sing His greatness, all creation Praise the Lord, raise your voice You heights in all you depths from furthest east to west, you distant burning stars, all creatures near and far, from sky to sea to shore, sing out forevermore, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Sign to you a baby born in Bethlehem. Come and worship, do not be afraid. I come 
company of angels glory in the highest and on the earth a peace among those on whom his favor rests come and worship do not be afraid my soul my soul magnifies the lord my soul magnifies the lord he has done great things for me great things for me is born unto us a son is given let every heart prepare his throne every nation under heaven come and worship do not be afraid come and worship Do not be afraid. My soul, my soul, magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. He has done great things for me, great things for me. My soul, my soul, magnifies the Lord, my soul, magnifies the Lord. He has done great things for me, great things for me. celebrate the incarnation of Christ every day, forever, right? Uh, but I love Christmas time because we just, it just gets a little more emphasis uh, all, all around the world. And so it's a, it's a, it's a cool, special time. So, uh, and we're privileged to get to celebrate that together as a body. Right now, if you have a seat, Austin's going to come up and he's going to, uh, it's not going to be our children's moment right now, uh, but it will be a time for Austin to pray for our missionaries. So today's order is a little bit different. A couple of songs he's going to pray. We're going to play a couple more songs and then he's going to have a children's moment. So you kids who are just waiting for him, hold on just a little bit longer. Come on. All right, well, let's pray. Father God, we come to you and we... <laughs> that, that line from that song strikes me. Come and worship. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For the shepherds were in the field. They were biding, tending their flocks by night. The holy host appeared to them. 
told them of the baby that was born. They said, do not be afraid. We have no need to be afraid for Jesus has come. He's broken the bonds of sin. He's, he's, he's taken down the veil that separated us from your holy presence. A presence that you, that you said no one can see my face and live. Can enter into my glory and, and stand it. Christ came. And he's made a way for us. And this is the message that we take the message that we take locally to the people around us, our family, our friends, the people we do life with, is the same message that we take globally. And so, Father, I lift up our missionaries that we support to you. One's in Bangladesh, in China, South Africa, other parts of the world, Lord. Ireland. Father, would you, would you strengthen these families, these individuals, as, as you've called them? And you said, go. And they, they've had this holy unsettledness that, that, that just says, I can't rest. I can't, I can't stay here. I can't do anything unless I'm, unless I'm there, unless I'm, I'm in this country, this people group that you've called me to, to faithfully take your message. And then they get there, and it's hard laborious work to break the ground, plant the seed and wait for the harvest to come. Harvest they may not even ever see in their own lifetime. So Father, to this high calling that you have called them to, to be missionaries in a a culture that's foreign to them, would you keep them faithful, Father? Would you give them that same message of redemption? Come and worship. There's a baby that's been born. Let me tell you about him. I'll tell you about this baby who was unlike any other. He was the Word made flesh. Who bore the penalty on Calvary's cross for our sins. He was buried three days and, and God exalted him. He rose from the grave. He's seated at God's right hand. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. Strengthen these, these missionaries, Father. Keep them faithful to the task at hand. And Father, would you give ears to hear and eyes to see to the people that they give the gospel to. That they might come to know Jesus. And that they might then turn around and share Jesus with their family, with the people in their villages, in their neighborhoods, their neighbors that others might come to know you as well. That in all things you would be glorified and you would be exalted. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. If you would stand for us again. To those who sit in the shadow on high, pierce the night Blue is the cornerstone Unto us the Son is given A 
Your holy name. 
everybody doing this morning? Good. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed? Maybe. What does that mean? I don't know. It's, it's hidden in here. It's in my pocket. Maybe so. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, it's good to see you guys this morning. All right? So we're continuing our study through the Bible, right? This, this, we're trying to, we're looking at 16 sets of verses that help us see how all the little stories of Scripture 
tell one big story about God and his glory, okay, and our part in it and what he's doing to carry out all of his promises, promises that were given all the way back to the very beginning of time. Okay, so let me summarize for us kind of where we've been. Because I know some folks were out last week. Okay, so remember, God made a kingdom, right? Made a kingdom, and He made people to be His representatives in that kingdom, right? Two people in particular started that. What were their names? Adam and Eve. That's right. Okay, but Adam and Eve they rejected that that responsibility, right? They sinned against God. They they disobeyed Him. They ate the fruit from the tree, right? Okay, and everything started to fall apart. Okay, the people who were made in God's image, who had a big responsibility, right? They didn't carry out their responsibility. They rejected it. Okay, but God didn't leave them alone, right? He promised that he would crush the head of the serpent, right? He'd break the curse, okay? He would deal with sin, all right? And he would fix things. And we found out a couple weeks ago that, well, the way he would do that would be through the seed or through the offspring, the children from Adam and Eve, specifically through Abraham, right? Through a promise he made to Abraham. He picked Abraham out, right? Abraham didn't deserve anything. He was a, an idolatrous worshiper. Somebody worshiped idols. And God picked him out and he said, Abraham, you're, you're my guy. Okay, I'm going to give this promise to you. You're, you Through you, I'm going to bless the world, right? And through your offspring. Okay, that was a verse we looked at a few weeks ago. Okay, now last week we looked at a verse that told us a little bit more about that promise, Okay, right? We were looking at Jacob and his family, right? All of his 12 sons. And right there at the end of Jacob's life, they're all gathered around here. And Jacob, okay, as the grandfather, as the father, he's giving a blessing to all the family members. Okay, and there was a special blessing that he gave to Judah, right? And we found out through that verse, okay, which we'll read here in a second. We found out through that verse that this blessing of Abraham is going to come through a royal king. okay. Through a royal king. So if you've been working on this verse, let's say the verse that we worked on last week. Okay, this is Genesis 49.10. Okay, the scepter, you guys say it after me if you know it, okay? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Okay, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There you go. Genesis 49.10. Right? Okay, good, good. All right, I know those are tough. Okay, but those are very, very helpful to put something in front of you every week. Okay, that helps you remember who God is and his promises and what he's been doing to carry out those promises. Okay, so we saw last week that part of God, how God is going to carry this promise out, how he's going to deal with this issue of sin, okay, how he's going to carry, how he's going to bring these promises about is through Judah's family, okay, remember Judah's part of Abraham's family, okay, and this promise that God gave to him, okay, that the future, that, that one day there'll be a king who comes, Okay, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples, right? Okay, that was a big promise, okay? It wasn't just little, okay? It went to all the peoples, okay? All right, so this week, we're going to fast forward about 450 years, okay? We're going to pick up the pace. We're out of Genesis, and we're going to move really quick, okay? And I want to talk about the law, okay? Specifically, the sacrifices that were given in the law, okay? Now, you may know this, you may not, but in the Old Testament, there were a lot of sacrifices. These were kind of like gifts that were given to God, 
Okay, and they were animals that, yeah, they were animals that were killed. Lambs, goats, bulls, sheep, okay, pigeons. Sometimes it was grain, okay, different things. But most all of them were animals, okay, that were killed, or, uh, that were killed and offered to God. These were called sacrifices, okay? All right, so I want to talk about these and, and specifically one that's called the Passover, okay? But to get to that, we've got to, we've got to fast forward 450 years, okay? So listen up real quick. So when we left off last week, God's people, the Israelites, okay, that's what they became known. They were in Egypt, all right? And so Jacob dies, and then his family begins to die. Uh, Joseph and all of his brothers, time goes on, and they die. Well, what began as 70 people coming into Egypt, okay, when Joseph was, was, you know, brought them in during the famine, that was about 70 people. Over four centuries, that's 400 years, they multiply into about 2 million people, okay? And all over, over that time, the rulers of Egypt begin to forget about Joseph, okay, and all the good things that he did, and they start to become very suspicious of the Israelites, okay? There's a lot of people there, and they don't trust them, okay? And so one ruler in particular decides, you know what? This is getting to be a problem. We're going to kill all the firstborn of the babies, okay? We're going to kill all the, you know, all the, all the male children. Well, one of those survives, and his name is, is Moses, okay? And so God uses Moses... All right, to rescue his people, okay, because the people were crying out to God, God, we're suffering, we're suffering here. Don't you remember your promises you've given to us? And God tells Moses, I've heard the cries of my people and I'm going to rescue them, okay? And so God's going to bring them out of Egypt. Now, he could have done anything that he wanted to, right? But what he does is very important. He sends 10 plagues, Right? You guys may know this story, okay? Ten sends ten plagues on Egypt, okay? The locusts, right? Uh, all these other different, they had the frogs, okay? All these different plagues on Egypt in order to bring the people out, okay? But there's one way that God, one thing that God does. Hang on just a second. Wait, what? Okay, you got, something's kicking in your mind. Tell me real quick. No, don't tell it. Don't tell it. That's my job. <laughs> Don't tell it. Okay, I'm glad you're paying attention. Okay, I'm, I'll ask you a question, though. Is that what you were going to say? No. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Thank you. No. All right. Well, tell me, what's the last plague? What was the last plague? No. What was the last plague? Do you remember? The firstborn. That's right. Absolutely. Okay. There you go. So you guys are tracking with me. That's awesome. That's great. Okay. I'm really encouraged by that. Okay. So let's go over that because not everybody may know that. Okay. All right. Not, not all the adults may know that. So let's go over that. Okay. So the last plague was that God promised that if Pharaoh didn't let, the pe- didn't let his people go, that God would kill the firstborn son of, all, uh, uh, of, of everyone in the land. Now, this is important. That wasn't just the Egyptians. Okay. That was of the Israelites too. It was the firstborn of everyone. And it wasn't just little babies. It was the firstborn child of any family, whether that was an adult or not. That's a lot of people, okay? Okay, because the Egyptians were under sin. They had been disobedient to God, okay? And the punish, that was the punishment of sin, okay? But also the Israelites were under punishment too, okay? Did you know that too? The Israelites, we find out elsewhere in Scripture in the book of Ezra, 
that the Israelites had begun to turn and worship the idols of the Egyptians. Not only that, but they disbelieved God's promises. You know, when Moses came to him, to them and gave them promises that God's going to, you know, rescue you, they didn't believe it. And the people were very stubborn. Even after God rescues them, they're very stubborn in the wilderness. And they don't believe God's promises. Okay? So they're in sin too. They need to be rescued from their sin. All right? And so God gives them this, this, uh, this way out, this, this way for them to be saved. Okay? And this is what he does. He says, here's what I want you to do, Israelites. If you trust me, okay, I want you to take a lamb. Okay, the night before the destroyer comes, the night before this plague happens, and I want you to kill the lamb, and I want you to take the blood of the lamb, and I want you to, what, Calvin, put it over the, put it over the doors, over the doorposts on the side, okay? And when the angel comes, he'll see the blood of the lamb that was killed instead of you, and he'll pass over your house, That's why it's called the Passover. Exactly. And here's the verse. Okay, here's the verse for this week. Exodus 12, 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel, that's the top part of the door. When he sees it on the the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house and strike you. Okay? All right. So what that is, God is laying a foundation for his people because when he rescues them, all right, when he rescues them, they come out of Egypt, they go through the Red Sea, right? They go into the wilderness. They're disobedient in the wilderness, right? They grumble and complain. And Moses is like, why don't you stick me with these people? You know, God says, be patient. You know, all of these things happen. And God gives Moses the law, right? Remember the Ten Commandments? You know, okay, we've talked about that. Gives them the Ten Commandments. But gives them the sacrificial system. All of this is to lay the foundation for, God said, you're going to be my people and you're going to be holy. And this is what you're to be like. He gives them the law, but he knows they can't keep the law. So he gives them the sacrificial system. Okay, do these sacrifices, all right, do these sacrifices, and particularly one sacrifice every year, the priest was to do to sacrifice a lamb that was called the Passover. Every year do this, and this is the, this is the sacrifice that, is the, uh, that covers everyone for their disobedience, okay? That's, do you guys know what a substitute is? We've talked about this before. You have substitute teacher, someone who stands in for the real one, right? Okay, that's what, the, that's what the lamb did. That's what the sacrifices did. They were a substitute for the person, for the people. Okay? So that was very, very important. And this was done all the time. This was done all the time. Now, think about this. Put, your head, put, your, put yourself in, like, be a child, be a kid in Israel during this time. Okay? And you're thinking about this. This sacrifice is going on. Okay? It's happening all the time. But it's not fixing the problem, is it? When the lamb dies, when that's done, you're like, okay, I'm covered. The lamb died instead of me. The lamb took the penalty that was due to me, but I'm still broken. Because this time next year, we're going to have to do this again. So do you see, do you see where we're going with it? Yeah. What happened? Is the lamb fixing the problem? Absolutely, that's exactly it. I tell you what, you guys are y'all are good. Y'all are good. Absolutely. So you see, this is pointing forward. There must be a greater sacrifice that has to come. There has to be a greater sacrifice because the sheep and the bulls and the goats—they're substitutes, but they're not fixing the problem. 
That's right. Absolutely. That's exactly it. A greater sacrifice was needed. Okay. So here's the point. Okay. God is, when he instituted the law, when he gave these, the sacrifices, it wasn't just because God loved blood. It wasn't because, you know, God was some needy person who we need to appease. God was saying, no, 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 I'm holy. Because you're sinful, you're made in my image, and you're broken, the, pen, the penalty for sin is death. And I'm going to give you a way out. I'm going to give you a substitute. But that's a temporary substitute, because a greater substitute is coming. Somebody tell me, who's the greater substitute that's coming? Jesus, that's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So I gave you your verse. Okay, I'll put that up on Discord for your parents. Okay, and you guys work on that verse this next week. Okay, all right. So as we close out, okay, God just received. God is keeping his promises. He's going he's to keep his promises. He's doing something. It's taken a lot of time. You're getting bits and pieces all along. Okay, but God is doing this. He's carrying out his promises. So the people get into the promised land, and just like we said, they continue to be disobedient. Right? They continue to kind of want to do things their own way. Alright? And they rebelled against God. They didn't trust His word. And eventually they get settled into the promised land where God had told them that they would be and they, they start looking around at the other nations and they go, you know what? These places have kings. We want a king too. So they asked God for a king. You know, up until this point they didn't have kings. They had judges. They had people who would help make decisions and things. But ultimately it was God who was leading them. And the people said, we want a king. And God said, okay, I'll give you a king. You're not going to like it. It's going to cause problems, but I'll give you a king. And that's where we'll be next week. Don't spoil it. Cliffhanger, yes. Love it. All right, so let me pray for us. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate y'all interacting. This is great. All right, let me pray for us, okay? But you guys keep that in mind. God is keeping his promises, okay? And in that substitute, in those sacrifices that were given, all right, they were a substitute for the people's sins, but they weren't the final substitute. Jesus would come to be, to take the, to be the final substitute. All right, let me pray for it. Father God, Lord, I thank you. Thank you for these children. I thank you for their attentiveness, their willingness to listen, to interact. And uh, Lord, I'm just encouraged. Uh, thank you, Father. Thank you that you give us the stories in the Old Testament of the sacrifices. Lord, they're hard to work through. They're, they're weighty. And Father, sometimes they're, they're, they're uncomfortable for us. But that, uncomfort, that discomfort reminds us that we need a substitute. And thank you, Father, that we have the privilege to live this side of the cross, to look back and see that Jesus was the final substitute, that we, we don't have to sacrifice bulls and sheep and goats and lambs anymore because the lamb died on the cross for our sins. So, Father, we worship you today because of that. Bless these young hearts, Father, as they listen. Bless us all, Father, as we hear your word. May it strengthen our faith, and may we walk faithfully in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed. You guys can go to your class. We're going to sing one more. You can... Stand with us one more time.
power to have victory over sin and death, over the penalty of sin for us and over sin's power in our life. So we're reminded of that today, Father. And the sign of his victory is him seated at your right hand. Our anchor, as the book of Hebrews says, in heaven. The one to whom we may look for hope. And so, Father, as Alan comes this morning, would you stir your Holy Spirit within us that we might see more of Jesus, we might know more what it means to walk in him, see the importance and the, the primary need that, that for us to be a new creation. So, Father, would you bless Alan as he comes? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can, uh, you can open your Bible to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We'll start in verse 11 today. So if you'll go ahead and make your way there, we'll do that. So I'm only going to be covering a few verses today. I had thought originally that I would go ahead and finish the book of Galatians today, but uh, not going to happen. So I've got at least one more in me for next week. So this is kind of a part one, part two of this sermon because there are just things that I want to say. There are just things that I want for our church family to hear um, with regards to what uh, what we see in Paul's letter here in Galatians chapter 6. So, uh, so let me read this for you to get a bit of a context. So Paul says, see what, with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. I'm sorry, Roseanne, we will not deal with the Israel of God today. So hang on, all right? Uh, the Israel of God. So, so again, in context, you have to go back to the beginning because Paul's wrapping this letter up. He's bringing everything to an end here. And so we understand that you have these new believing uh, Gentiles who others who have been influenced, who are Judaizers, have come in and said, well, the gospel's great and all, but it's gospel plus circumcision. So it's faith plus works, right? So there's some influence going on there. So Paul writes to them and says, hey, don't go that way. Because he sensed that there was a, um, a seduction that was happening. They were being seduced away from the one true gospel and leaning towards uh, a gospel of work. So he writes against that. 
You know, that's very clear throughout. He's, he's trying to protect them because he cares for them. This isn't a letter of, hey, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to give you this, 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 you know, this written spanking. That's not so much the idea here. It's of tremendous concern and care for, for, for the way that they could potentially be going. As, as a parent, when we have a child that's making bad decisions, you know, uh, I don't think that our knee-jerk reaction is, oh, I'm going to, you know, uh, you know, I hate this kid. I'm so angry. I'm going to beat this kid. I, I, don't, I think it's, a, it's, it's grief. I think it's concern. I think it's, it's a care that is born out of a depth of love for that child. So this is what's going on with Paul, this great depth of love that he has for these Galatian believers who are being seduced, who are being influenced away from the one who saved them. That's what he says, how, how quickly you're being lured away from the one who is brought you, the one who has kept you, the one who has rescued you. And so that's why there's a strong sense of urgency in this letter. But he goes through the whole thing talking about your justification by faith alone. He basically builds argument after argument against any notion of a works-based salvation, against any notion of circumcision unto, unto, unto life. Right, so he does all of that. So then we kind of come to this moment where he kind of encapsulates everything in these these few short phrases, and that's why he says, "See with what large letters I'm writing to you." He wants to be very clear, and he wants to make emphasis on what he's trying to say. And he does something very interesting. He calls out the motivation of those who would come in. He kind of reads their mail out for us. He shows them. Let me, let me tell you what their motives are. Those who are coming in, it, they don't have great concern for your soul. Do you understand that? He says those who are emphasizing circumcision, those who are saying works, 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 their concern is not for your eternal spiritual well-being. That's not what they care about. He said that's not the motive. That's not what's driving them. Rather, it is self-preservation and self-glorification. That's what drives them. So my objective today is that, to see and understand that self-preservation and self-glorification has no place in the life of a believer. Because I think Paul gets to that very quickly. He says, these pseudo-believers, these who say gospel plus, they've come in and they're saying faith plus works. Now, there are those that would argue that they were real believers who had been influenced. And so they're kind of in this weird area of, eh, you know, we kind of want to be safe and cover all of our grounds. Regardless of what their true identity or spiritual situation is, the reality is that they were emphasizing a gospel plus works, which Paul says in chapter 1 is no gospel at all. So I want to see and understand that self-preservation and self-glorification has no place in the Christian life. So again, I think you'll see this as we read. Verse 12 says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. He says two things with regards to that. Verse 12, those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. And then he says it again. He says it in verse 13, But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So they want to make a good showing, and they want what you adhere to, to promote them, to catapult them into this status that they desire amongst their peers. So there's motives that are tainted right out of the gate. And Paul's letting them know, hey, this is what they're up to. Don't be duped by this. Don't be seduced away from what's true, what's real, and what's right. Stay true to the gospel. Yes, you will be persecuted. Yes, there will be times where it is unbearable. But stay true to it because what they have is false. 
What they want for you is empty. Remember Paul said, if you go that way, Christ will be of what? Zero advantage to you. He's already given them these warnings. So here we are with this final warning, this final revelation of what their motivation is. And that's self-glorification and self-preservation. And that should not be the mark of any believer ever. So let's get into that for just a second. So Paul has identified their motives. He shared that with us. This is a, a, a first century type of virtue signaling. They didn't care about what was really at stake. It wasn't really about the hearts of men. It was about the, 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 the presentation that, that, that they made. It was about how they were perceived. It was about the accolades that they could achieve. It was about how they might be noted or honored or venerated. That's what they wanted. What's interesting is that the culture then hasn't changed so much in certain ways as it is now. We are a culture of those who like to venerate others. We like to honor others. True enough, there's a biblical precedent for honoring one another. You know, children, honor your father and mother, right? It says that very clearly. This is, this is, this is, this is a command to you children. Honor your father. Honor your mother. It's, it says it's, the, it's a command, first command given with a promise. You know, uh, you know we, we, we are told uh, elders are, who, who preach are worthy of double honor. Right? So some of you are single honor folks, man. We got the double honor coming. Right? So th- this, is, this, is, this is biblical, right? There's, there's honor, veneration. These things are fine. You know, uh, uh, there's a couple of, of people celebrating birthdays this week, you know, who have left their 30s, moving into basically their 90s. Right? So, so that's how we feel. So we, what do we do with birthdays? We, we, we say, yeah, we're so happy that you were born. We're so happy that, you know, that, 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 your, that your mama dad had you and gave, mama gave birth to you and that, you, that you're my friend and you know, all that stuff. So we, we celebrate people. We venerate. We honor. And there's nothing wrong with that. So I want to kind of get that out of the way because I'm going to bash on honoring later. But I want to be very clear that I'm not saying it's wrong to honor people. I'm not saying it's wrong to venerate. I'm not saying it's wrong to say job well done. I think those things are godly. I think those things are right. I think that's a way that we encourage one another. I think we keep it in context. I think we have to do such things recognizing fully that were it not for God and his grace, there would be no purpose in honoring anybody because you would never bring anything to the table, right? Whether it's your athleticism, my good looks, whatever it is, you would have nothing, right? Nothing. But we're a veneration culture. We're created as what? Worshippers. Why is it that we run to the lines of honor and veneration? Graham, I see you behind that post there. I lost you for a minute there. Why is it that we run to these lines? I think because we're made that way. I preached on this, I think, from John chapter 5. So it was a long time ago. So I'm going to touch on it just just for a moment. I think we're made as worshipers. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. But I think the reason we run to these lines of veneration, we, we, we have hall of fames for anything and everything under the sun. I think those things come from the fact that we are created as worshipers. I mean, we have, uh, you know, Alabama fans are venerating, they're honoring, they're celebrating, they're rejoicing today. Georgia fans, not so much, right? Yeah. We have Mother's Day, Father's Day. These things aren't bad. Right? But we honor mothers. We honor fathers. We honor veterans. We honor nurses. Nurses have Nurses Week. 
Pastor appreciation is a day, so whatever, I'm cool with that. There's a little, there's a little bitterness in my home. You get a week, Sarah, I get a day. But Memorial Day, Teacher's Appreciation Week, you know, so these are things that we've come up with to honor and pay tribute to those that, that deserve it, you know? Sports Hall of Fames, Aviation Hall of Fames, Space Hall of Fame, Music Hall of Fame, Cowgirl Hall of Fame, by the way. Michelin star chefs, that's how we honor and venerate these Gordon Ramseys around the world. We give them, or somebody gives them a Michelin star. Hollywood Awards, there's the Oscars, there's the Emmys, Golden Globes, Academy Awards, Screen Actors Guilds Awards, Writers Guild Awards, etc. What do we do? We, we are a culture of, 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 of veneration. But I think there's a warning to all believers to keep that in check, especially when it comes to the things of God, especially when it comes to the gospel, especially when it comes to the way by which and through which a man becomes right with God. Be careful that your works aren't aimed towards the, are, are aimed towards the glory of God and not towards the glory of yourself. Be careful of those things. We I think of this, I had a friend one time who told me, I, I, I was driving, this was, this was high school, I was driving somewhere and somebody had a flat tire and I helped them change their tire and you know, felt, felt good about myself because I helped somebody, right? I had somewhere to go as a teenage boy, right? I was really busy, I had things going on in life and I pulled over and took time out of my busy schedule and said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll help you. Helped them out, got back, and go, went to pick up my buddy and boasted in what I did. He goes, good job. He said, by the way, you know, he said, uh, your, your crown looks nice and polished. I was like, you know, so I punched him in the face and then, and then said, no, I, no. I, it crushed me because, like, what do, you, what do you mean? But he made a strong point. He's like, all you're doing is boasting in what, in what you did. You're just, you're wanting the attention. You're wanting me to pat you on the back. And he was right. I wanted him to think much of me because of what I did. Because what I did wasn't so much for Jesus, but it was so that someone might see what I did and say, good job. Good job. And that's a dangerous road that is easily traveled. I like to think of it as my metaphorical trophy case. I have these trophies that I'll take down and want to polish up from time to time. Right? And you have the same ones. Hey, I made X amount of dollars in 2020. Polish that trophy just a little bit. Hey, I led these many people to Christ or I shared the gospel this many times. I just want to polish that trophy just a little bit. I want to find a way to share what I'm doing. I mean, what God is doing. You see what I'm saying? And I'm not saying everybody's guilty of that. I've surely been guilty of that. So that's why it's in my trophy case. Right? How's your church doing? Well, let me tell you. On a strong day, we have X amount of people. Maybe I'm polishing that a little bit. I have to be very careful as if I have anything to do you know, well, I mean, obviously I have something to do with Haven Ridge because of my calling, but outside of God's grace, I don't, right? So I have to be careful. I, whether it's closing a deal, Evan, or whether, whether it's uh, uh, leading a team to victory uh, or, or whatever it is, I have to be careful because we go to that metaphorical trophy case and we want to just polish it up a little bit because we want people to see it. We want that because we're prone towards self-glorification, Christian, non-Christian, it doesn't matter. We're prone towards self-glorification. That's a part of being broken and fallen. We want what belongs to God. We want glory. We like glory. Glory's good. We like that. 
I think you just have to be very careful. In a world obsessed with pronouns, I think that it's right and proper that we use I a little bit less. Even gospel intention or missional and ministry activity we have to be careful of because it can give way to idolatrous boasting. It can. It can give away to these things. I think there's a strong warning to people like myself and to Austin. Listen, one, one, one guy wrote this, quote, How many pastors' conferences turn into Monday morning brag sessions where we tout our own ecclesiastical statistics, tipping our hat to the good Lord, of course, to be sure, but craving the luster of the limelight for ourselves? Being a younger man in ministry, I remember going to, uh, before I was serving in the local church, you know, going to uh, preach at different youth events, youth retreats, youth camps, stuff like that, you know, uh, preaching at Centrifuge and Infuge and stuff for a few summers. And really in my mind, I don't even know if I want to say I was fighting the temptation for, a, for, for, for an ego problem. I think I welcomed it. And so it got so bad that I would go to places and preach, and if something didn't happen, if there wasn't some kind of great movement, I walked away thinking, what did I do wrong? Why was my sermon not good enough? And I walked away, and, and, and sometimes devastated that, I mean, nobody came to Christ. And I would kind of, my joy would be stolen because my joy was in myself, like, what did I do wrong there? Why didn't, why, why didn't this great movement of God happen? And somehow I, you know, thought it was up to me for these things to happen, right? Because I wanted self-glorification, you know, because there were times that things happened. And the bad news is that I'd walk away with a chip on my shoulder saying, wow, I really, I really had a home run with that sermon, you know? And these aren't things that, that I'm immune to now, uh, but maybe definitely God's grace and, 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 and wisdom and years of realizing uh, my inability, God's making clear to me that it has absolutely nothing to do with my ability, but the power of the gospel, the power of truth, and his ability. So make sure that the glory of God is the sincere outpouring of your heart and not a misdirection that serves the purpose of hiding your crown from others. The glory of God is it, not just a show, but that that is a very sincere, a very real uh, intention behind what you're doing. Paul makes it very clear, a good showing in the flesh, they say. That's what they want. They want to make a good showing in the flesh. They want to be perceived in a certain way. They want to be lauded in a certain way. They want to be glorified. They want to be glorified so their efforts are focused on their own glorification, self-glorification. They would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. It's self-glorification, but it's not only that, it's self-preservation. To boast in the cross invites persecution. And he makes it clear right here, here that, their, that their approach was, hey, we, we want you to be circumcised. And he says, here's their motives. Here's our two reasons. They want self-glorification. But here's the other reason. They don't want to face persecution. So it's kind of having their cake and eat it too. 
They're not, they're not condemning the gospel. You saw that from chapter 1. They're not coming in saying, oh, well, it's not that, it's not that. They're saying, hey, good on you for that, but it's also this. Good on you for faith in Christ. Good on you for those things. We, we affirm that, but, but, but may it never be that you, that you only subscribe to the gospel, but you need circumcision. And it says the secondary reason is because they didn't want to be persecuted. They saw what happened to people who trusted in the gospel exclusively. They saw what happened to Jesus. You see what I'm saying? They, they, persecution is very real. They knew this and they were afraid. I mean, Jesus himself told the apostles before it ever happened, he says, listen, you go this road and here's what you can expect, to be ostracized and killed. And that's what happened. And this wasn't lost on these people, so... Self-glorification, self-preservation. Self-preservation was on the mind of these Jews here only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. These Jews didn't want the heat that came with the cross. They didn't want that. But the gospel doesn't leave room for this sort of self-preservation. It doesn't leave room for these things. I'm not saying, I'm not saying, hey, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's run headlong into martyrdom. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you're a, a gospel suicidal. I'm not saying you're looking to die. That, that's not the idea here. Okay? Uh, you know, I'm not saying, hey, don't worry about your life. Don't preserve your life. So be reckless and be silly and be careless or haphazard. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if you honor Jesus with your life, the time will come that persecution lands on your head. I mean, Jesus said, anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus or Paul said, we'll be, we'll be persecuted. I mean, it's there. The gospel leaves no room for self-preservation. The gospel, by nature, will invite persecution into your life. And here's why. Here's why you can expect that. So you know how my brain works by now. It's one thing to say, yes, we know, we know that that will happen. The Bible says that. But there's a reason that these things happen. There's a reason that your gospel message is is going to invite persecution into your life. And here's just a few of them. First of all, the gospel is contrary to the world that you live in. It is contrary to the world that you live in. The gospel is about bringing life to dead men and women and about making light out of darkness. There's two problems with this. One, dead people act like dead people. Dead people spiritually are hostile, insatiable, and wicked. By nature, that's who we are. That's what Paul said. Out of the gate, Paul says, look, here's the thing. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were these things. You were hostile towards God, he says also in Romans. You're an enemy of God. Not that you shake your fist at God and say, I hate you, I hate you. Your natural posture, being separated from God, is a posture of hostility and being an enemy of God. That's why we labor with the gospel, whether it's at the abortion clinic, whether it's out on the street, whether it's, whether it's you know, in your natural rhythms, whether it's at work or whether it's with your children or whatever. You labor over the gospel because you know what they don't know. You know as a living, spiritually, spiritually alive person what they don't know and can't know as a spiritually dead person. That is that you are an enemy of God. You're an enemy of God and you are hostile. But I don't curse God, so I don't do bad stuff, so you are bad. There's no one good, no, not one. It's not about what you do or what you don't do. It's about what you are. What you are. Christians have a hard time getting that through their head. 
I've received calls from no one in here from long-standing believers who have asked me, explain to me again, I don't understand why God would condemn someone who really doesn't do anything wrong. Like, okay, there's a whole lot of problems with that. But we get down to the nitty-gritty of it, and it says, don't look at what you do or what you don't do. Because Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated, not because what either one of them had done. That's what he says in Romans. But the reality is, we're born broken, we're born estranged. We're born enemies and hostile towards God, needing redemption, needing restoration. And the gospel exposes that. And dead people act like dead people. They respond that way. Darkness hates the light. So this is why the gospel is contrary to the world that we live in. It's also, it's also an, an issue... There's also an invitation to persecution because the gospel is offensive. Why is the gospel offensive? Well, for starters, because it tells people that they're wrong. It tells people that they're wrong. You have a conversation with someone about the gospel who's not in Christ, and you have to get to this point saying, listen, you're in wrong standing with God the Father. We don't want that for you. And here's how you can be in right standing. And it's not even about you, and that's the good news. It's not something you can keep. It's not something you can pay for. It's not something you can do. It's something that Jesus has paid for and Jesus has done. That can be applied to you, and then your status then is justification, a legal declaration of right standing before God. So the gospel is really good news. And we rack our brains sometimes. We're like, this is good news. This is great stuff. So why do people get so mad? Why is it so offensive? Darkness hates the light. The gospel is offensive because it tells people they're wrong, because it tells people that they aren't good. It becomes a mirror for them. They don't like to hear that. Do you like to hear when you're wrong? No. You don't like that. You don't like to hear when you're wrong. You don't like to be chided or, or rebuked. I don't like that. Nobody likes that. It's good for us. And maybe in the long term, I can look back and say, thank God for that. I didn't like it in the moment, but I'm glad for it. I mean, that's, that's normal for all of us. But that's a believer who's thinking with a gospel mind, trying to see through gospel lenses and sees the inherent goodness and restorative power in rebuking and, and, and all of those things. So, but a lost and darkened world, it, they're offended by that because the gospel tells them, hey, you're not good. But I won a humanitarian of the, of the year award. I gave X amount of dollars to this charity. I did good things by the world standard of goodness. The gospel is offensive because it tells people that they have needs that they themselves can't provide. That's a big offense. That's a huge offense. What are you talking about? I make this much money. You see all this? You see the, the, the house my, my family lives under? Do you see the roof that's over their head? Do you know the square footage of my house? Do you know this? Do you know that? Do you know that? It doesn't matter. What you need has nothing to do with material. What you need has nothing to do with your ability. It's your ability that got you in this mess. It's Christ's ability that gets you out. The gospel is offensive because it tells people that they are not masters of the universe. Because we're not. And that's offensive to people. You mean we, we, we're, we're not the sovereign of all things? You mean we don't, 
We don't determine our future. What, what, what was the movie that I was watching the other day? This isn't in my notes. So I won't chase it. I won't chase it much. I probably won't be able to remember where a guy was disgruntled in the movie. And they said, why are you disgruntled? And he said, at the end of the day, it's because I don't like the idea. Oh, it's the Matrix. That's right. Where Keanu Reeves says, I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of all things. I'm like, that's so true for so many people, especially the lost world. Like, you, you, obviously you can't stand that. You want to be in control. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. The American dream argues against the sovereignty of God. The American dream argues against all things happen after the, after, happening after the counsel of God's will. It says it happens after your will. It happens according to your will. That's the American dream. Is What you want, you can have if you put your mind to it. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18. That's another reason that it invites persecution. The world hears it and thinks, that's just absurdity. That's absurdity. How do you respond to such absurdity? With vitriol, with hatred, with persecution. The gospel is beyond the natural man's comprehension. 1 Corinthians 2.14. Again, the world rejects, the world hates, the world responds with this in this way because the natural mind can't grasp it. For these reasons, boasting in the cross will invite persecution. And these Jews that were coming in with these Gentiles and saying, hey, gospel plus, they don't want anything to do with that persecution. And that's what Paul calls out. He says, listen, <laughs> they're saying they're right with God. They're saying they're right with God, but there's a big disconnect because if they're right with God, why are they glorifying themselves and why are they trying to preserve their own lives at all costs? At the cost, at the cost of not boasting in the cross. It's a strange juxtaposition that takes place here. The gospel puts us in harm's way with regards to the world, right? And that's what, it, that's what he's saying. Listen, they were not boasting in the cross. Why? Because they wanted to preserve their life because, because it was a self-preservation kind of idea. But the gospel puts us in harm's way. <laughs> it puts us in harm's way with regards to the world, but it keeps us safe with regards to God and eternity. It grants us fellowship with God and it rescues us from his wrath. You follow me? It rescues us from his wrath. So, so without the gospel, we are not safe because we're subject to the targeted wrath of God. With the gospel, we're not safe because the world wants to kill us. But with the gospel, we are safe with regards to eternity and fellowship with God. It's counterintuitive to boast in the cross of Christ. I'll just let you know that because it invites persecution. It doesn't make sense I don't do things that are harmful or painful to me. I don't like that kind of stuff. It's counterintuitive to do that. It's counterintuitive for me to stick my hand in boiling water. It's counterintuitive for me to put my hand on a hot stove. It's counterintuitive for me, you know, to, to you know, run on a treadmill until I get tired. It's like, I'll quit before that and call it a day, right? It's counterintuitive because it's painful. Paul has already told them not to grow weary of doing good. This, this most definitely applies to the gospel efforts as it relates to persecution. Not grow weary of doing good. 
You go out one day to a colleague, to a family member, to a hostile whoever, you share the gospel, and they hate you for it. Don't grow weary. Don't grow weary of those things. Interestingly, people aren't often persecuted for doing good deeds, good as the world sees them. Who among you has ever been persecuted, church, for, for, for paying for someone's meal? All right, let's try it out. Let's try it out. All right, take me out to eat. Pay for me. See if I persecute you. Okay, I probably won't. But you, that doesn't really happen. For helping a drug or alcohol addict become clean or find sobriety. Who's persecuted for that? How dare you? Leave them in their drunken state. No. Yeah, we want them to be clean. We want them to be whole. We want them to be healthy. Nobody has persecuted us for adopting Sophia. Nobody said, how dare you open up your home to a child like that? How dare you open up your home to a child who had more methamphetamines in her system than on record in South Carolina? How dare you look after that orphan child? Nobody persecuted us for that. We all love good. The world celebrates men and women who they deem to be do-gooders. I mentioned the Humanitarian of the Year Award. There are Humanitarian of the Year Awards every year all over the world. They follow somebody, whether they're in Forbes magazine or what, and they say, hey, you gave this much to charity. You did this. You did that. Whatever. You're the Humanitarian of the Year. And they praise and laud and venerate this person because of their good deeds. They're not persecuted. But what's interesting is this. That good is ultimately connected to love because the ultimate good is love. The ultimate love is the gospel. And when you go there, you invite persecution. And persecution comes from two places. First of all, it comes from the world. The world around us, the lost world, the world in its systems. The world that is set against God. That's how I'm defining that. They will persecute you. But I would say even more, maybe not more, but as a heavier hit, some Christians face persecution from the church. Let me just touch on that for just a second. It's a strange, twisted day when the saints of God condemn or persecute another saint of God for being intentional with the gospel of Christ. But it happens. Maybe we don't like a method. Maybe we don't like a tone. But the question is, if we back up and say, are they given the gospel? And if they are, are we condemning them to their face, behind their back, whatever? Are we condemning the gospel? Ministers are under threats nowadays. I'm thankful for this church. But there have been ministers fired all across the country because they said, I will not preach a pro-LGBTQ sermon. I will love them as image bearers of God, worthy of dignity and honor. But just as I needed the gospel, so do they. And pastors are being fired. Fired if they're not woke enough. Fired if they are too woke. 
fired if they preach against homosexuality, transgender, and the entire sexual revolution. There are Christians that don't like the men and women sharing the gospel at the abortion clinic. There are Christians that don't like that some people go downtown and they do open-air preaching. I was a guy like that one time. Not an open-air guy, but there was a season in my life where I saw no value in open-air preaching. I saw no value in it because I went to hundreds of homes door-to-door and rarely, if ever, saw any kind of movement of God that I knew of. So I became jaded. I thought, that, that's not the way to go. I've done it. I've shared door-to-door, door-to-door. So then I was like, eh, let's not do so much the door-to-door thing. And then God began to change my heart. And God solidified within me that the gospel is where the power of salvation for all men who believe is. Whether it's the gospel from a box in a crowded street, whether it's the gospel at work with a coworker, whether it's the gospel being delivered from a gentle voice to a very sensitive person that just doesn't know Jesus, it's the gospel. And I want to be affirming of anyone who will take the gospel to the hard places. Be careful, church. Be careful that your comforts and your preferences do not act as fire extinguishers attempting to put out the flame of the gospel. So let me give a word to those under fire. Do not be seduced by the notion of self-preservation. Do not grow weary. Again, I'm not saying rush towards martyrdom. Because even that can be an idolatrous act on your part. The Christian is not to be concerned with self-preservation. Four warnings against this. One, I believe that self-preservation doubts the power of God to preserve. I have to trust, Matthew 6, that God always has my best intentions And that God just might be powerful enough to stop any bullet, to stop any beating, to do whatever he wants for my safety. And I also believe that just because I might succumb to danger, it doesn't mean that he doesn't keep me still. And I have to be careful because I believe that self-preservation can lead to doubting the power of God to preserve Another warning against self-preservation. It assumes the role of God in preserving. Who is the one who gives and takes away? Not you and not me. Who is the one that does the keeping? Not you, not me. We've already established if you could lose your salvation, you would, right? It says in the scripture that he keeps you. He's the one that does that for you. That's where my confidence is in the gospel. Not in Alan Birchfield's ability to keep on keeping on, keep on keeping on, right? That's not where the power comes from. So I trust in God's role and him doing what he's competent to do. So warning number two is to be careful because self-preservation could assume the role of God in preserving. Thirdly, it denies the commands to go, the command that God gives to go. God commands us all. Hey, if you're someone who's been given truth and you do something with that truth... Doesn't have to be at the abortion clinic. Doesn't have to be downtown. It doesn't have to be um, 
at uh, for, for uh, uh, sorry Miracle Hill. It doesn't have to be you know. There's no there's no specification offered there other than go, go wherever you are. You know wherever you are. Be intentional. Look for those opportunities. Create those opportunities. Because otherwise, it denies the command to go. If we are so afraid of the fallout, the bad two to no star review on Google of Haven Ridge Church, I, it, it stings. Somebody writes, so there's only been one or two now from some guy in California who doesn't know us at all. It stings. Makes me very angry and hurt. And I'm like, why do I take this so personally? Why does this bother me so much? I'm pacing around my house, like, I'll fight somebody. You know, that's how I feel sometimes. You know, I think God reminds me that it's personal to you because you love what you do and you love the body so much, right? So, yeah, it's personal. What I believe in is personal to me. So, that's just a little freebie for you all that when someone says I don't take it so personal I wasn't shot at you consider the source I get all that but at the same time it is personal because it's personal to you because of what you're invested in because of the way you care for the souls of men and the way you care for truth it's personal that's free four warnings uh sorry uh five warnings the 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 fourth is it refuses to love those whom we are called to love how can you be in self-preservation mode and go into hiding but still be intentional about the ones you're trying to love with the gospel? Makes it more difficult, right? If you say, look, I'm creating the only standard through which and by which that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let my guard up and not be in self-preservation mode. And that has to be in a very calm, non-hostile context. You know, matter of fact, they have to invite me into a conversation. They have to, I pray for that all the time. Lord, let them just ask me questions. And then I won't feel so rude or abrupt. You know, Lord, just let them start asking me questions. Like, uh, how must I be saved? Stuff like that. You know, I pray for that, right? Doesn't happen very often, but I pray for that. I'm glad you asked, you know. Sorry if this offends you, but you asked. So here's my question. Well, the fifth, the fifth warning. This it, it makes an idol out of a life that doesn't belong to you in the first place. If you go into self-preservation mode so much with regards to gospel and your calling and task to be lights in the darkness, if you go into shutdown and self-preservation mode so much, you make an idol out of your own life. A life that doesn't belong to you. A life that was given to you physically by God, spiritually by God. One that you didn't earn, but he did. One that you didn't purchase, but he did. So here's my question, and we'll end part one. Does the cross drive you towards enemy lines, or does the threat of persecution drive you towards self-preservation? I believe this is the question we all need to give serious thought. Because we're very much in a time right now, as, as the way I think about it all the time is, there's some persecution ramping up. We're seeing things happen where people are more hostile towards the gospel. I get it. Uh, more visibly hostile towards the gospel. Uh, we're not in a culture anymore where being, not being a church-going believer was taboo. It's, it's shifted now, right? 
there's the there's the the the, the few and the proud now, right? There's, there's okay, uh, uh, w- w- what's happening? What are we seeing? We see, and people are concerned about this. Okay, so that church used to have this many people. Now there's this many people. Christianity's failing. The church is falling. No, ma'am, no, sir. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. What this means is they're going from nominals to nuns to borrow a, ta- a topic or to borrow a title from a, an article written by Ed Stetzer. He's saying that there is a time where it was popular to be in church, to be a professing believer. That was what you did, and to not do so was taboo. You were looked down on. Because of the shift of culture, the nominal believers and the non-Christians don't feel that pressure. Now it's taboo to be gospel-centered. Now you'll face some persecution. So these things have a way of coming back around. So here we are which is why I think we need to give thought to this. Speaking from hypotheticals and theoreticals will no longer suffice. Well, if this happens, I'm going to be bold. Well, the time is now. Is the cross enough to endure all things? Is it? Let things... Let's think on that question this week and next week. We'll consider what it is to boast in the cross of Christ. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, as we are a people who like to honor others, as we are a people broken and fallen and fallible who love the praises of men, I pray that you would graciously grant us a right perspective towards honor towards worship. Lord, that all of our boasting and all of our veneration and all of our honor will be with the backdrop of grace, will be, will be the backdrop of the gospel. And Lord, may the world know that even in our honoring and even in our lifting up and affirming of men, Lord, that it's done in, in its right place. Lord, please protect us from self glorification. You will not share your glory with another. Far be it from us to take for ourselves what doesn't belong to us in the first place. So Lord, be glorified in our life. Be glorified in our glorying in you. Lord, be glorified in our willingness to say, Lord, I trust you to preserve me in whatever way you see fit. And resist the temptation to shut down and to go into self-preservation mode. Lord, may we resist the temptation to, to put a lampshade over our lamp, over our light. Lord, may we resist that temptation to, 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 to hide in the darkness so that our light doesn't shine before men and so that they would glorify you in heaven. Lord, make us convictional and passionate about what we're called as light and walk in such a way to glorify you. In Jesus' name. Amen. You're just-